The book of the prophet Haggai. It's one of the smaller prophetic books, but crucially important in the overall story of the Hebrew Bible. So for centuries, the Hebrew prophets had been accusing Israel of breaking their covenant with God through idolatry and injustice, and they warned that God would send the great empire of Babylon to take out Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and haul off the people into exile. And it all happened in the year 587 B.C. But that wasn't the end of the story. The prophets also believed that there was still hope and that God would one day bring back a transformed remnant of his people Israel to live in a new Jerusalem where God's presence would live in their midst. Now when we turn to Haggai, the year is 520 B.C., nearly 70 years after the exile. And the Babylonian Empire has recently collapsed and the world is now ruled by the Persians. Now, they allowed the return of any exiled Israelites who wanted to go back to Jerusalem, which still lay in ruins. And so under the leadership of a high priest named Joshua and Zerubbabel, an heir from the line of David, and a group of exiles, they all returned and began to rebuild the city and their lives. Remember the story from the book of Ezra, chapters 1 to 6. So our hopes are high and the future seems very bright, but it's not actually, at least from Haggai's point of view. Israel had just spent 70 years, 70 long winters, 70 long periods of time in Babylon. Jerusalem was still in ruins and the temple was raised. They were living as refugees. Well, because of their choices, there are very few highlights over these last 70 years as we look in the scripture and and look at Israel's history. Yes, there was Daniel, which we talked about last week, and his friend Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And those were amazing stories. But really, in 70 years, a few episodes, at least that we have. Suddenly, though, there is a ray of hope, a sliver of sunshine. Hasn't that been fun over the last few days? If you've been up early in the morning and the sun's been out, and you get up and and through your windows you notice something you haven't seen for years. Uh, Okay, exaggeration. But it feels like that, doesn't it? some sunshine. And you start getting all bubbly and mushy and, oh, spring's going to come. Yes, it's going to happen. And you look at the thermometer, it's 27 degrees. You walk outside and your windshield is so thick with frost, you're going like, oh, man. Okay, thread. Thread of hope. It's coming. And this, I think, is what's happening here. It's still 27 degrees. All right. But there's a thread of hope for the Jews. Open with me to the book of Ezra. It'll be a tough find if uh, you can certainly look in your index or, or go to your uh, Bible app. But the, but the book of Ezra is not that long. And I'd like you to go there, and we're going to start off reading in chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Ezra 1, 1. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred the heart of Cyrus. We're going to keep noticing that. But that is really quite amazing. To put this proclamation in writing and send it throughout all of his kingdom. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem in Judah to rebuild the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel who lives in Jerusalem. And may your God be with you. 
wherever this Jewish remnant is found. Let their neighbors contribute toward their expenses by giving them silver and gold, supplies for the journey, and livestock, as well as voluntary offering for the temple of God in Jerusalem. What an amazing turn of events! God stirs the heart of a Persian king toward the Jews and then unleashes or points the Jews toward Jerusalem. Say, oh, Rick, this is so cool. Let me put this in perspective, okay? Because we're not getting this, I I don't think, unless you're a history buff, unless you understand who Cyrus is. But this is a little bit, all right, like... um, A mob boss who has, well, gained his fortune illegally coming to Dan Bayright, the chairman of our elders. Say, hey, Big Dan! Dan says, what do you want, Big Louie? You always got to be big like if you're a gangster, right? And, and so on. So we got Big Dan talking to Big Louie, and Louie whips out his checkbook. And I know no one has checkbooks but Louie's old-fashioned. And Louie says, Dan, how about a new worship center? In fact, let's destroy that whole building. Let's just build an unbelievable contact, uh, uh, building. What, what do you think? What would you like? Big Dan goes, whoa, let's start with $10 million. No problem. We meet with you guys the next Sunday. Hey, by the way, uh, a good gangster friend of mine came and wrote us a check. It says, hey, here's the deal. We're going to like, rip this place down. We're all going to help and figure out what's going on. But he just paid for the whole thing. I'll bet there's a few of you that would line up to Big Dan. Because I'm going to blame him. And say, what is going on? What's the deal? But this literally is what happened. All right? Now, Going back in this miraculous way is not new to some of those God-fearers who are living in Babylon. Both Jeremiah and Isaiah had prophesied in Jeremiah 25 and in Jeremiah 29 and Isaiah 45. But I'm going to read out of Jeremiah 25, verses 11 and 12. And this happened many years before this specific incident. This entire land, Jeremiah says, will become desolate wasteland. Israel and her neighboring lands will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Then, after the 70 years of captivity are over, I will punish the king of Babylon and his people for their sins, says the Lord. I will make the country of the Babylonians a wasteland forever. So you're reading through all this, and you're starting to see it come to pass. And you are pinching yourself because God continually surprises us. But God continues to stir hearts. So we're back in Ezra, Ezra chapter 1. Look at verse 5. Then God stirred the hearts of the priests and Levites and the leaders of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of the Lord. And all the neighbors assisted by giving them articles of silver and gold, supplies for the journey, and livestock. They gave them many valuable gifts in addition to all the voluntary offerings. Wow. All right, God stirs the heart of this pagan king. Then God starts stirring the hearts of the priests, the religious order, and all of the leadership. Stirring, giving them an itch, having them open a new perspective, saying, hey, I want you to take a 900-mile trip, and I want you to start building the temple or rebuilding the temple. Wow. Again, for us, we don't always get the significance of the temple. 
I mean, we kind of look, okay, it's a building. Okay, what is the big deal? And, and so on. But let me just remind you, to a Jew, it was the physical representation that God was present. Without a doubt. All right? It was a big deal. The temple said, God is with us. That's why it was so disastrous when the temple was destroyed. God was publicly shouting, you know what? You guys go on. Head over to Babylon. You guys go, you know, you have disobeyed me long enough. You're out of here. In fact, I'm, I'm leaving you. But here it is. Go back. Go back to Jerusalem. Build the temple. Let everybody know that I am with you. It also shouts about a a relationship. Remember, again, we get some confused here so many years later, all the sacrifices and all the blood sacrifices and how come the priest could only go into certain places like the holy place and only go into the holy of holies where the actual presence of God was once a year. Whoa, that was kind of crazy. But that is what, again, the Jews understood. God wants a relationship. And he's a holy and he's a just God. And he requires sacrifices in order to cover sins. Never take away sin because eventually we find out in Hebrews that Jesus came to die once and all and be our perfect sacrifice and to end all of the sacrificial system because he satisfied the wrath of God by dying on the cross. The perfect lamb. Behold the lamb. And to shed his blood. So that once and all you can enter into relationship with God. Not once a year. But every single moment of the day. One of the greatest miracles that has ever, ever happened. So... In 538 B.C., I know that we've been talking about dates, but it's just helpful. 42,000 plus made this 900-mile trip back to Jerusalem. All right. Some of you are getting ready to go to Florida for your spring break. And you're going to drive because, oh, so much nicer than going on a plane. And you figure it out. How many miles, how many stops, how many, all that kind of thing. And, and some of you are courageous enough because you have kids and you want to go through the night and you really need them to sleep or they're going to drive you crazy. So you figure it out. 10, 12, 13, 17. If you're going to Miami, whoa, don't go there. All right? Way too long. And you drive there. And you're sacrificing a little bit. But could we just go back? Look at Ezra chapter 2, verse 64. Ezra 2, 64. So a total of 42,360 people returned to Judah. In addition, 7,337 servants and 200 singers, both men and women. Oh, interesting. They took with them 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, 6,720 donkeys. Now, did you hear me say 900 miles with camels, horses, mules, donkeys, and people through desert? There is no one in their right mind that gets excited about a trip like that. Honey, we're going back home. Oh, that's so wonderful. We're walking, following camels. 900, 900 miles. Now, maybe that wouldn't have been so bad. You're trucking through, and you go, oh, remember our house, the pool, unbelievable palm trees, you know? And then we get to worship our God at the a magnificent temple. And then Dad quickly calms her down, saying, honey, no more pool, no more house, no more temple. 
we are going back to absolutely destruction. Can you imagine this young mom? Can, oh, honey, this is so exciting. 900 miles! And we get there and there's nothing. Oh, we get to build our house and set up everything. Oh, this is just a glorious time. I know God is working in our lives. No. We read these texts, though, and just automatically assume, ho, ho, how cool is this? 42, can you even imagine 42,000 people, 50,000 people just traveling? Like how many times do you stop for the bathroom? Just asking, you know? Just a little weird. And here we go. But God stirs hearts. A pagan king, leadership, neighbors, and Jews. The trip was difficult. The task was overwhelming. The challenges were everywhere. Everywhere. Wow. Let's pray. Father, we're... We're looking at an exciting time, a hard time, a ridiculous time, an amazing time. We are looking at a part in Scripture where people of God are listening to you. But God, in this part of Scripture, as they listen to you, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of simple going on. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of um, easy going on. It, It seems to me, God... There's going to be a lot of work, a lot of discomfort, a lot of sacrifice, and that it might be just easier to stay in Babylon. But God, nothing's going to thwart your plan. And there's going to be a group of people who get excited. And there's going to be a group of people that that move. Would we be like these people? Lord, we know your word is being given out to all kinds of places right now. And and we have an opportunity to join a multitude of believers who are being fed and are being able to worship you, God. We pray especially for these other churches all over the world. Specifically here, Father, we pray for the chapels. And we ask you, dear God, in all their campuses that your word would be honored and, and you, they would worship you with all their hearts. We also pray, Father, for Alpine Chapel and pray, dear God, that you would encourage that staff and strengthen them and may they continue to be salt and light. Lord, as we open up your word, we ask you to do something amazing. We do, God. We know you're here. We know you're working. And we know we need to hear from you today. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Let's get back there. There is some great excitement and energy to rebuild the temple at first. Let me say it a different way. Whoa! We understand the problems. We understand how difficult. We understand the challenges. Let's go! They finally get there. They see the disaster. They recognize what is happening. And I am so sure that many of them just gasped. All right, well, let's at least start the project. Let's get this going. God kind of is stirring our hearts, so let's listen. And there were many, many obstacles. But one is so cool. It was not resources. It was not money. It was not gold or silver. They had everything they needed to build. Their challenges were going to be who they were going to hire, how they were going to get the work done among the people, and still juggling life. You see, they were rebuilding. And rebuilding anything, and you've seen it, whether it be a fence that gets knocked down, an old shed that happens, or, I don't know, part of your house, and and that's a bad thing, I know. 
but you start to rebuild. And it, and it involves resolve and commitment and sacrifice. But these people have just moved back. And the scriptures tell us they need to establish their homes, their shop, their life. But people gave freely of their resources. In the beginning, they gave of their time and their treasure and their talent. But on top of all the normal challenges, just trying to get back into a house, just trying to recognize all the responsibilities of rebuilding a temple, a house of God, there was outside interference. And you can read through this. Anyway, let's look at the Ezra timeline then. We're going to start in Ezra chapter 3. But this is so refreshing. The first thing that happens when they get back, very first thing, even as far as we can tell before they start building their houses, before they do anything. And I'm not sure how many, you know, I mean, what kind of waves, 50,000 people. You know, I don't know if this was like the first wave or, or how they did it all. But the first thing happened, they rebuilt the altar. In Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. In early autumn, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled in Jerusalem with a unified purpose. Then Jeshua joined his fellow priests in Zerubbabel, son of Shealel, and his family in rebuilding the altar of God of Israel. They wanted to sacrifice burnt offerings on it as instructed in the law of Moses, the man of God. Even though the people were afraid of local residents, they rebuilt the altar at its old site. Then they began to sacrifice burnt offerings on an altar to a God each morning and evening. I think they had their priority right. I'm not sure everybody was following whole hog at this moment, but, but that's what happened. Construction literally started in the second year of their return. So it took them about a year to establish their house or, or figure out life and, and start coming into some natural rhythm because they were now living back in this land. The next thing they did is hire professionals. But let me just note, everybody helped, including the priests and the Levites. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. The construction of the temple began in mid-spring during the second year after they arrived in Jerusalem. The workforce was made up of everyone. The workforce was made up of everyone. The workforce... I'm stuttering. (laughs) Bad situation. The workforce was made up of everyone who had returned from exile, including Zerubbabel and Joshua and his fellow priests and all the Levites. In verse 7, they hired the carpenters and the masons. But in verse 8, all of them came together. All right? It was exciting. And what happened is a natural thing The foundation was quickly laid. Everybody worked hard, and everyone knows you need a foundation to build a building. So when the foundation was laid, chapter 3, verse 10, great celebration. Verse 10, when the builders completed the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests put on their robes. They took their places to blow their trumpets. The Levites um, clasped their cymbals to praise the Lord. Just as David has prescribed, with praise and thanks, they sang this song to the Lord. He is so good. His faithful love for Israel endures forever. That was just a foundation, folks. But there was so much joy at that moment. This is so cool. It's coming together. We have opposition. We understand all this. But God, you are working. But the opposition grew. It grew locally and then nationally. Look at Ezra chapter 4, starting at verse 4. Then the local residents tried to discourage and frighten the people of Judah to keep them from their work. They bribed agents to work against them and to frustrate their plans. This went on during the entire reign of King Cyrus and lasted until Darius 
took the throne. Now, what I want to share with you is that the work eventually stopped. It just stopped. The pressure was too much. The opposition was crazy. And they just said, you know what? It's not worth it. Ezra chapter 4, starting in verse 24. So the work on the temple of God in Jerusalem had stopped. And it remained at a standstill until the second year, the reign of King Darius. Whoa. The work stopped. Ezra 4 24. Now let me just say, and you can read through this, but there's a little bit of a digression from chap- uh, uh, in chapter 4, starting at verse 6, going to 23. It's kind of like a giant parenthesis. And if you love just going in chronological order, you go right from verse 5 right to verse 24, all right? And that will help you understand a little bit. So the actual work on the temple, for those who want to write down in your Bibles, it stopped at 530 B.C. That's Ezra 4.24. And it did not start again till 520, 10 years later, in Ezra chapter 5, verse 2. Between 4.24 and 5.2 is 10 years. I guarantee either you have a study Bible and you can read this, or if you do not write this in your Bible, the next time you pick up Ezra, you will not get the significance. I will also encourage you to write the prophets Haggai and Zechariah were the ones that talked in these 10 years. Now, this is so cool, all right? There were 10 years, 10 years happened. Now, Ezra chapter 5, in my opinion, shouts. It shouts. It shouts a few things. First of all, God's plans will not be thwarted. Okay, there's some opposition. Okay, you went through the tough trek. Okay, you traveled the 900 miles. Okay, you've got a house. Okay, you're settling in. Okay, there's a few people that are bothering you. But God said his temple is going to be rebuilt. So, what was happening is that God sends two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. This is so cool. God is so faithful. For some reason, Israel, you've stopped. I know there's good reasons, but really there isn't. You've stopped. You've just stopped. So these next nine years, and just about a little more than nine years, these people stopped. Wow. The messages we find in Haggai and Zechariah give us some insight and perspective of what happened. But this is really, if I could give you a a Reader's Digest kind of perspective. Little by little, the Jews lost interest. Now, maybe it was opposition, but I want to suggest it might even be busyness of life. After all, they needed to get their houses in order and their businesses back up. Maybe that is more important. They began to pay less attention to God's house and more attention to personal projects. Now, wait a minute, Rick. Are you telling me God's house and the priority of God's house? And are you going to go? Now, come on. Is this going to be a new campaign or something like this? And let's. Actually, it's not. It's really not. But really, this is what happened to the Jews. All right? And to them, God's house was, remember, all about God being there. It was huge. Way more important than any church building today. I'm just letting you know. All right? No one will really know all the reasons, but let me paint some pictures. Maybe stacking stones 
was boring. What do you mean? A lot of stones around in a temple that was destroyed. And after a few, well, days working in the hot sun, and the bosses say, let's stack more stones, you go, whoa, this doesn't seem good. Or maybe the threat seemed more harsh, who knows? More likely, as I said, they started thinking about their own stuff, their businesses, their farms, their homes, and their family. One by one, they stopped showing up at the work site till no one showed. God's big thing originally became a little thing to the people. One week passed, and then a month, and then a year, and then five years, and then almost ten years. Nothing happened. All they saw was the foundation. That was it. And as I said, you want to read some prophets. Haggai and Zechariah brought it. God's word was so clear. But because Haggai's only two chapters, we're going to focus on Haggai. So if you could, can you turn there? And again, it's a little bit hard to find. It's only two chapters long in your Bible. But turn to Haggai. I'm going to start reading chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 1. And by the way, in your bulletins, you will see at least one handout. And it's the book of Haggai. And you say, oh, that's nice, Rick. I'm glad you did that. But there's ulterior reasons for that. Over and over and over again, I encourage you to mark your Bibles. And I want you to know what it's like for the preacher up here. You all look at me like I just grew six heads. You know? Oh, that's nice. Maybe I'll mark a Bible. Who knows? But I'm going to push this. Because this is an amazing thing to do. It helps you listen to God. And what I did, I literally photocopied the book of Haggai that's in my Bible that I'm reading through right now. So you don't have to even open up your Bible if you want. You can go right to your handout. You can read right with me, and you'll see how I marked my Bible. Now let me just remind you. Very little rhyme or reason in in my marking Bibles. There, There is nothing sacred about this. Yellow means it's important. Underline means it's a little less important. Circle means it's kind of important. Color doesn't mean anything. If I start bolding things, oh, that's kind of cool. If I put an X on this side, I'm going, I'm excited about this one. If I draw an arrow, it means I need to... Can you get the hint? That's because you have an ADD pastor. All right? He gets bored. He doesn't know what he's doing. But this is living for me. And I want to encourage you, mark your Bible. So Haggai chapter 1. On August 29th of the second year of King Darius' reign, the Lord gave a message to the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of the governor of Judah. Okay, Verse 2. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. I love this. This passage kept being repeated, so you'll see me underline it every time. All right? The people are saying, oh, the time has not yet um, come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Whenever I see then or but, I love circling those. So there it is, verse 3. Then the Lord sent his message through the prophet Haggai. And he says this, why are you living in such luxurious houses? Well, my house lies in ruins. Emphasis, verse 5, this is what the Lord of heaven's army says. Look at what happens to you. You have planted, but you harvest little. You eat, but you're not satisfied. You drink, but you're not, uh, but are still thirsty. You put on clothes, but you can't keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them in pockets filled with holes. Third time, verse 7, this is what the Lord of heaven's army says says. Oh. And he goes on. And he says, verse 9. All right. 
You hope for rich harvest, but they were poor when you brought your harvest home. I, God says, blew it away. I kind of like that. I made a square around it. Okay? Why? Because my house lies in ruins. Says the Lord of heaven's arm. I want to keep reminding you who's saying this. It's not Haggai. While all of you are busy building your fine houses. Oh. Oh. You know what? i got to stop here. Because I have to be very, very careful. I don't want to give the impression that any mishap in life brings the anger of God. Yet I do need to encourage you to ask the question. Are things happening in my life because I am not listening to you, God? Are there certain disasters? Are there certain hard times? It's really easy to say, well, if you walk with God, you're going to have a great bank account, a great marriage, your kids all turn out, and you drive really good trucks. Whoa, you guys might sign up for that, Jesus. Right? Guarantees. But there are times we're spending too much time on our houses and our families and our businesses. And God says, how's that bank account? Making lots of money, huh? That's when the hot water heater goes out. That's when your furnace stops working. That's when the hole in the roof gets bigger. Say, whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, okay. Doesn't always work that way. But, but we have to ask. There are seasons of life that are so difficult, so challenging, that God may be trying to get our attention. We plant much, harvest little. Eat, but never filled up. Drink, but a thirst is never quenched. We must continually give careful thoughts of our ways. Remember, no one ever starts off being casual toward God. I have never, ever met a new believer that says, well, you know what, if I get around to it, I maybe read the Bible. If I get around to it, I might pray. No, new believers, they're they're amazing. Oh, I need more. I got to get this. Tell me, how do you do this? They're so thirsty. They bug you. They text you. They write you. they, They bother you to death. But you start walking with God for a while and you get casual. And things aren't as important. His word's not important. No believer deliberately sets out to ignore God. No marriage ever starts off thinking your love will wane and wax. Not one. I'm telling you, I cannot even begin to share with you how excited newlyweds or almost weds are. Oh, they read all the assignments you give them. Most of them. But all that, and, and you know what happens though? Six months into it, eight months into it, eight years into it, if you last, this isn't so exciting. This takes work. (laughs) Why would I want this? Whoa, there's a babe at work. I'm getting rid of my old one and getting a new one. Like that's going to fix all the problems. All I'm saying, we never would imagine doing that the very day we say I do. Never. But it happens. And it happens with God. So give careful thoughts of where your passions lie. Have you allowed good things like a spouse, children, career to squeeze out the best? C.S. Lewis quotes this. He says, put first things first and we get second things thrown in. Put second things first and we lose both first and second things. 
You see, if we are not careful, the time comes when we no longer wake up thinking about the temple. Rick, I've never woken up thinking. You get what I mean? There's a time you wake up and all you can think about is your bride. Well, it kind of fades. There's a time you wake up thinking about God, the kingdom, how you serve him, what you can give, how you can be extravagant, how important it is to be able to share good news. You cannot be thwarted. Then you wake up. Oh, car needs a battery. Better get to that. Do I think cars need batteries? Yes, I do. But it's really odd what starts taking priorities. Tithing becomes tipping. Prayer becomes rote. Church attendance becomes a duty. And service is perfunctory or even non-existent. But there is good news in this text. And maybe good news that you need to hear even today. But people respond. Look at Haggai chapter 1. Look at verse 12. Whether it's in your Bibles or my notes or whatever. Then I circle it. Because I'm excited. All right? The whole remnant of God's people begin to obey the message of the Lord. I literally take my pen and go through every letter. You know why? This is amazing. And some of us just, um, oh, the whole remnant of God's people began to obey the message of the Lord. I love God's word. Let's go to work. There's transformation happening right here. Do Do you understand that? Do you get that? When they heard the words of the prophet Haggai, whom the Lord their God had sent, the people, look at that, circle, underline, oh, it didn't underline, a yellow, feared the Lord. That is a response. God's word is amazing. God's word is powerful. Now, if you say, Rick, isn't this appropriate? Yes, it's appropriate. But I am also telling you, this is unusual. Let me remind you again in the text, and you can write this through. This took about three weeks after verse 1. All right? Verse 1, Haggai shows up. All this stuff. He's preaching powerfully. Verse 12. About three weeks after verse 1. God's word changes our thinking, changes our actions. In fact, I can tell you right now. I can tell you right now. If God's word hasn't transformed you in the last day, you're not listening. I guarantee it. If God's word hasn't transformed you in the last week, yikes. If God's word hasn't transformed, changed the way you think and changed your attitude, made you more generous, given you a heart for people that you don't even like in the last month, 
God's not stirring your heart. Well, you're not listening. That's all. Don't you come to a place where you're fearful? I, I, I would begin to be afraid if I'm reading God's Word and not listening. It will show. It will show. And then what happens? They celebrate. They celebrate. But be encouraged. They got so excited about everything. They started working. They responded. It took six more years, as I said, until the building was completed. But look in Haggai chapter 2, starting at verse 4. Be strong, all of you people left in the land, and now get to work, for I am with you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. My spirit remains among you, just as I promised. When you came out of Egypt, don't be afraid. He keeps talking, this is the Lord of heaven's armies, this is the Lord of heaven's armies, all the way read re- through that. I want to encourage you, I want you to not, you know, put your hand to the plow and then leave. Let's celebrate. Let's celebrate. And if you want, you can go back to Ezra chapter 6, and I'm going to read Ezra 6, 15 through 17. The temple was completed on March 12th during the sixth year of King Darius's reign. The temple of God was then dedicated with great joy by the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the people who returned from exile. During the dedication, look at this ceremony. For the temple of God, 100 young bulls, 200 rams, 400 male lambs were sacrificed. Wow. And again, don't understand all of it, but but let me just tell you, this was extravagant. They were partying. So grateful to God. Let me wrap up. Haggai's voice was strong. Judah needed to renew their walk with the Lord by rebuilding the temple and worshiping the Lord in purity. The purpose was to force Israel to confront their spiritual indifference and renew their spiritual commitment so that they might once again receive God's blessing. Oh, Haggai's voice is so relevant today. Every time I'm done with some of our story, I talk about an upper story and a lower story. A story we can again learn about God. And I call that the upper story. And God just says this, I am so, well, I'm not so sovereign, I am sovereign. I'm going to accomplish what I'm going to accomplish. I'm going to use a pagan king and stir his heart. I'm going to use pagan people and they're going to give money toward the project. It's going to happen. Things are going to happen. But what's so cool is that God stirred hearts, but God's people finally listened and responded. And with great joy, completed the task that God had given to him. And God stirs hearts. Let let me just remind you of this. I didn't define what God stirs hearts look like or feels like. But let me say this. As you walk with our Lord, as you listen to him, as you open his word, and you don't just hurriedly just go through these motions, but it's your father writing a love letter to you, You stop and you listen. And there's, well, a burden that God gives you. There's a person that brings to mind that you need to go ask for forgiveness for because you just acted like a jerk. There's some generosity or need that comes up and you said, oh, man, I can't wait to give to that person or that ministry or that situation. You know, as a pastor, it's so odd. Being in ministry so long, do you know how many people write Sharon and I for support? Like, we have unbelievable amount of money in the coffers. You know? All these kids that grew up and went to be missionaries and pastors, do you believe it? Oh, 
Pastor Rick, I'm going too. And Sharon and I look at each other. Lord, is the heart stirring? Because I don't know, man. I can't. But what a privilege. How cool. You hear, I get excited when offering goes. I do. Because I love giving away. No, sometimes I do. Sometimes I know. It is a blessing. God, thank you. Thanks for letting me be part. Yeah. So God stirs heart. If your life is so active and so busy, my encouragement is this. I don't think you're going to hear God when he stirs your heart. I just don't. That's why it's really important in Psalms 46 when, when the psalmist writes, be still. So God can stir your heart. I added that last part. Okay. And then the lower story. I think we need to celebrate more. Little victories, big victories, little things, big things. I want to encourage you in the lower story to consider your ways. God always has more for you. You can't outgive him. You can't outserve him. You can't. You can't. We have a tendency not to seek first the kingdom of God because we love seeking first the kingdom of Rick. But God says, no, consider, consider. Life is so good when we listen. And lastly, mark up your Bibles. If you need help buying a Bible, my, my translation of choice is the NLT. I want to encourage you, if you don't know or have a bent, buy one of those babies. I'll encourage you. I will give you one. I give away Bibles like crazy. The elders are going to start talking to me about my budget. I guarantee it. It's cool. I love it. I will give you a Bible. Yes, let's mark up our Bibles. Let's pray. God, you are a good God. You're an amazing God. You are a loving God. And you pursue us. You've got your plans. You've got your ways. And sometimes they, they just really butt heads against what we want. But you know what's best. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for reminding us. Thank you for your love letter. Thank you for changing us from the inside out. Thank you, dear God, that you are walking with us on the adventure. Thank you, Father. We love you. And we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.